How are you, Jules? I'm good, thanks, Bezo. i got a little story for you. Oh, do tell. So, you know the uh, book we talked about last week? Sourced? Yes. Hand sourced? No. No, Eat Local. Eat Local. Sorry, there's my, my um, <laughs> plugs being mixed up from last week. So I bought that for my in-laws because yeah. they looked after my kids, all three kids, for three nights last week. I wanted to do something nice for them. Um, and they love the scenic rim. Mm-hmm. And they've got some friends who have an olive farm in the scenic room who are in the cookbook. Oh, nice. So she was flicking through the cookbook and she's like, ah, I know those people. So she was very excited. Oh, that's really nice. So and I think she'll go to some of the events. They'll they'll go to some of the events in the the program. I think those events look really interesting. We all should support it. Mm. So they can do it every single year. Yeah. Yeah. And if people are looking for that, the links to it are in last week's show notes. Oh, cool. Last episode show notes. All right, All right so what do you got you. this week? I've got short stack single editions from New York. Mm-hmm. So each little... So it's like a mini, mini cook booklet. Yeah, and so then, it's like an old school yeah. CWA style booklet, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and then every single issue is just on one ingredient. Yeah. So far, I think they've got about... It's like a deconstructed cook's companion. Yeah. And it's really cool. And then the idea behind it is that, you know, you collect it all and you put it in your kitchen shelf. And then say, like, if you've got heaps of lemons and you can't think of, you know, unusual or different things to do with it, you pick up the book and there's heaps of different lemon recipes. And then they're all written by people, you know, chefs, um, food writers, and people who, who are in the industry. Each issue is written by a different person. Okay. Mm. The thing that appeals to me with this sort of style of printing, which is very lo-fi, um, not shiny paper, mm. is you can just imagine, like I can imagine having this in my kitchen and it getting grubby and yeah. dog-eared and, and yeah. it looks like it should be used. Yes. It well, doesn't look like it should... Yeah, it's not inc- a display thing. No, no. If, if, if it feels like you would get this, and because it's not sort of really high-end glossy mm. material, you don't feel like you can't touch it. It yeah. feels like something, oh, you know, just pull it out and yeah. flick through for a tomato recipe when tomatoes are in season. Yeah. So there's eggs, tomatoes, strawberries, a whole one there's of buttermilk, of grits, yeah. sweet potato, broccoli, honey, plums, corn, apples, brown sugar, lemons, and prosciutto. Cool. And you get very American. It's got summer squash. Yeah. Okay, so there's more. How yeah, many there's is... peaches, chickpeas, and chocolate. Wow. There's about 18 volumes at the moment. Very cool. And how much do they go for, Julie? Um, $20 each. Okay, cool. Yeah. Come and get them, people. Thank you. We, we, we should rap about things that we like, like... Like food. That's what. You bugging us. You know it. We're going to be like the Partridge family, but with food. You like food, don't you? Got any uh, white bread? Yes. Oh, wait. I am the spaghetti. Duval, you're not the spaghetti. I am the spaghetti. Let go of the lid. Just spaghetti in here. Is this organic? Sure. Is it grass-fed? Yes. Cruelty-free? What's so special about the cheesemakers? As the saying goes, you are what you eat. And I am freaking cheese. Get out of bed for eating crackers. How about 
Hi, Amanda. How are you going? I'm fine, thanks. Be so. Thanks. Welcome to Cheesy. I'm very we're, happy we're actually, to be here. Yeah, we're, we're back to the old Cheesy where we actually have eating cheese every week. Oh, no, I'm the lucky one. <laughs> um, the, the early podcasts were known for four minutes of mumbling through Sally and I <laughs> smashing biscuits and cheese because we both come straight from work and we're hungry. Hungry. <laughs> we, we weren't professional enough to, um, to eat before we started the podcast. So. Oh, right. Well, I'll just drink through it too because you've got that lovely red wine as well. Yeah, so Stacey's given us this week a Cabernet de Suma. Uh, and I'm very happy because since, um, since I had a chat to him on the pod, he's given me nothing but red wine, which <laughs> I prefer to, to white. So, um, which is sort of where you your specialty is because you are, a, would you say, a champagne specialist or a sparkling specialist? Champagne specialist, actually, particularly... Yeah. Um, sparkling wine is quite a broad scope. Broad church. Yeah, and whereas Champagne's very regimented, it's a very small area in France. I've got very strict rules, and um, it's a sort of a particular speciality, I guess. So, I guess the question is: Is it superior, and why is it superior? Oh, that's a bit of a loaded question. I think. Um, look, I think. I prefer it to sparkling wines. I find it's more refined. Um, So, what are the what are the characteristics of champagne? It's it's drier. Not necessarily, but typically, to the the average champagne is typically drier than a lot of the the cheaper sparkling wines around. Yeah. Um, The thing is, champagne comes from just this very small microclimate in France. Well, the grapes have to really struggle to get ripe. Okay. And it's that struggling for maturity yeah. that gives the sugar acid balance that gives the grape, the drink, the um, qualities that it has. Is there um, anywhere in like Africa or South America or America or Australia that has those types of conditions? Are there very I think, narrow bands of similar yeah, wines? Yeah, I think... Um, Mornington Peninsula and Tasmania, yeah, quite close to, because um, it's a sort of a continental climate and an oceanic climate that mix together. Together, yeah. That so you need that, that. and the, it's northerly in Europe, but it's southerly here. Yeah. And I have had some quite decent sparkling wines from both those regions. Yeah. Um, the difference is um, then allowed to irrigate in Champagne. Uh, okay. In Australian wine, and that's all over. If they feel like they need to irrigate, irrigate and they, they can, will. they will to yeah. get better fruit. So, champagne that it's more selective, um, more open to what Mother Nature throws up at them. Well, Stacy was telling me some of the Spanish wines; they're still not allowed to stake their vines, mm. which I, I just blew me away. Yeah. But you know, you, if you want to grow wine, and it's not, it's not just simply you have to grow this particular variety of wine Mm. it's you have to grow the wine to these conditions in which it's always been made yeah yeah Um, and in champagne i mean they have to prune the vines a certain way they are only allowed to leave a certain amount of stems after pruning yeah they have to harvest on the day that the committee there's a big committee that makes all these decisions each village is given a date harvest date and they're not allowed to harvest before that date if the um owner thinks that the grapes aren't quite ready mm. they can wait 
a little bit longer before they harvest, yeah, but they're but not allowed not to start before the so, date that has been... There's just so much. It'd be very interesting um, to see how they cope with climate change then. Actually, it's very it's something I've been researching a little bit at the moment. Because yeah. um, tradition's going to push up against that pretty hard. Well, there is some vein of thought that... Um, they might have to go to England to get the climate. <laughs> the, the, oh, wow. That's not going to happen in Champagne. <laughs> what it means is they do know the temperature has increased by 1.2 degrees over the last 15, 20 years. Yeah. So they've got all these statistics. The acidity has dropped and the sugar content has risen. It's risen because of the warmer weather. Because of the warmer weather. And harvest has started about two weeks earlier, 13 days, I think they say, earlier than yeah. it has in the last 20 years. So there are effects how they're counteracting that effect is by the methods they're using in their winemaking yeah and also um horticulturally speaking as well the, the way they're dealing with their vines and okay so they're not sort of just going this is tradition we're just going to keep starting the harvest on may 3rd because that's the way it's been done for yeah. 400 years they're, yeah. they're trying to preserve the actual nature yeah. of the grape so actually they've never actually had a date where they start the harvest that is like may 3rd what yeah. they do is they have groups of um um committees in each village that goes around and they test the grapes for okay. ripeness and acidity and sugar levels yeah and they decide when from those readings that they take and they send back to the um, Committee Champagne, which is the big um, trade union of Champagne, and the scientists there all get together and decide, yeah. okay, when, when will this village be allowed to start harvesting based on what the grapes are giving? So they, they adapt that. Each year's different because, of course, the climate's different each year. Yeah. So that's very interesting to start with. But um, what I think it will affect, because they're getting sweeter, so there's something in Champagne they're called dosage. It's the extra sugar they add to get a particular um, blend that they want a particular sugar ba- acid balance oh, in their wines. So Some people do low dosage. There's hardly any sugar. Yeah. Um, the trend has been to get it lower and lower. Um, As the sweetness of the grape goes up. Well, just it has been a bit of a trend to have lower dosage wines, but now by necessity they're not having to put as much dosage in. So it looks like they're making lower dosage wines, but they're not really. They just don't have to add as much to get the The result that they want. So it's all about consistency of style in Champagne. So So considering, like I've always thought winemaking and beer making like and cheese is 80% chemistry, and 20% artistry. Mm. Um, how do they go with attracting people? Like, do they attract the more pure chemistry side of style of winemakers to that, considering there's so many constraints? Like, is there any any room for flair within champagne oh, making? Oh, certainly. And there's some real artists in there that do things um, differently to everyone else yeah. within, within, within the, the guidelines. Within the, yeah, they'll... They'll just blend things differently or okay. they'll try different things with single vineyard, single origin kind of area, single vineyard um, blends and um, how long they keep them in oak or if they don't put them in oak at all or if they have malolactic fermentation or if they don't do malolactic fermentation. So even within the, within the real <laughs> narrow range, there's still a oh, there's some fair pe- amount of wiggle yeah. room. Yeah. So in the houses, the big brand name houses that we all sort of know and recognize Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of um scope within them to go out of the mold per se because people are expecting if you buy a particular label you want it to taste like that yeah that's a whole different um 
skill to make it taste the same every year yeah because there's so much about that's it is really a very skillful thing so i don't think people realize how hard it is to make that consistent style that the big houses have but on the other end of the spectrum you've got the smaller grower champagnes that are um growing they like they're they're still judge like there's still certain restraints that they have to use so they have to use certain grape varietals yeah. they can't just plant any grapes yeah yeah they um, have to keep them in this in on lease, um, maturing in the bottle for a certain amount of time before they're allowed to disgorge them. Yeah. Um, non-vintages and vintages have different rules. Um, they have to harvest when they're told to harvest. Um, There's a few things they have to do, but besides that, if they get a different sort of champagne taste every year, it doesn't matter so no. much because that's showing what they're... They're more about terroir and what where their vines are what qualities that gives to yeah. the champagne one of my favorite shows is um cheese slices mm-hmm. and it's very interesting when he does the european cheeses which are all sort of tied into a tradition and a history and um you have those small bursts of inspiration within a, a sort of set mold and then the, the story I always tell is there's an American cheesemaker and they're making I can't remember exactly what the cheese went they're making say camembert mm. and they had two tonne of milk mm-hmm. that was supposed to go up to 82 degrees and sit there for two hours mm-hmm. to set mm-hmm. and something happened the timer broke or the temperature gauge mm-hmm. broke and it sat at 86 degrees or it sat there for four hours or whatever mm-hmm. yeah. now in France that you just dump the two, two yeah. tonne of milk because it it's never be. it's never yeah. going to turn out anything within the, the structure of what you're supposed to sell mm. but in america they don't care yeah it's like well they just completed the process and mm. like well let's just see and we'll mm. sell it as something else as long as it's edible we'll sell yeah. it as something else yeah and it actually turned out to be that cheesemaker's signature cheese oh, they wow. now sell it is like one of the most famous cheeses in america mm. completely different from what they were originally making yeah and all because of a, a, a machinery accident yeah. basically that yeah. something broke but because they had that freedom yeah it makes a big difference yeah. in the new world um in france and and other european countries they have such they have this appellation d'origine controlée aoc which means they control um the origin of of where something comes from yeah and there's rules for cheese for yeah, and even for shallots, you know, really? golden shallot. Yeah, there was a, a <laughs> big hilarious. crisis when I was there. I'll never forget about shallots because the real shallots, the expensive, good shallots, only have one bulb. The cheaper supermarket ones oh, sometimes right. had two or three bulbs, and it was like, beware of what you're buying because <laughs> they shouldn't be labelled shallot. This is in France. Oh right, they shouldn't be labelled shallots. They what, should have been they... labelled something else. Oh, okay, uh, because they weren't these special but, shallots. But essentially, they taste the same. Yeah, they're just more fiddly to cut, cut up, up, but yeah. I couldn't ever tell the difference back then. I was, not, you know, I was a young housewife at the time. I was like, okay, I'll make sure I don't pay twenty euros a kilo for the wrong type of shallots. So, if you're someone like my wife who had a very sweet, sparkling palate for, you know, most of her youth, mm. and is now starting to go with a bit better, um, drier bit more refined Mm -hmm. what should she be looking for is in champagnes or in sparkling wines probably in sparklings i think champagnes are probably i don't know whether she would appreciate the dollar like yeah for the dollar you can actually get some quite decent champagnes now for you know around the 40 dollar mark yeah non-vintage ones but i think she might probably 
um, look at some vintage Australian sparklings. Yeah. A little bit more refined because they've been the way they make them and they've left on lease longer. The um, bubbles are finer, more oh, complex flavors okay. in them. The flavors have developed a lot more. So is this the size of the bubble make mm. a difference? Yeah. So the finer the bubble, the longer usually it's been left on lease. Yeah. Um, and the flavors have been developing and everything. So. And does that bubble? also last as long like do you have to drink the wine quicker in the glass um, or, or like do you have to drink the, the bottle um, straight away it's just a different like really aged champagnes hardly have any bubbles in them so it's a oh, bit okay. more they do have i mean no usually for the length of the bottle being open the time it takes to finish yeah what's that about half an hour <laughs> no, that, that's, yeah. that's about average for vanessa i think yeah, yeah. no in all seriousness in whatever it is when the bottle opens the bubbles pretty much stay the same until you get to the end of the bottle in one sitting yeah um if they're finer when you open them they shouldn't disappear by the end of an hour or two yeah. okay um i usually um would always seal it but i put a stopper on it back Straight in the fridge away. if we're having it just in case especially a, a really yeah. good older one um but you know i always say vintage champagne is the flavour development as they get older is a bit like baking a, a tart, like an apple pie. You can start smelling it in the oven, and if the pastry is not quite right, yeah, you know it still tastes nice and you still taste apples. But if you leave it a little bit longer, it starts going golden and caramel. The sugars start coming out. The apple becomes more stewed and develop flavours. So, and as it cooks longer and longer and longer, the flavour gets more intense. And that's exactly what a vintage champagne is. The, the fruits are cooking, if you yeah. want more, and their flavour's developing. And you're getting a wider range, I guess, of, of flavours. Yeah, deeper, deeper flavours and um, more intense yeah. flavours. I think I'm a little bit like that with my whiskey now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, the, the whiskies, the good ones, are so complex and mm. you have that sort of you know as you bring it up to your mouth there's the the aroma of it and that sort of it's almost mm. like a smell slash taste when it first hits your tongue mm. and then there's the taste sort of when it rolls over your palate and then when you swallow you're getting a complete the lasting yeah yeah complete different sort of flavor and having the right type of glass to drink it out oh, okay. of as well is very important very important and not out of a coffee mug no, <laughs> you wouldn't do that with a good whiskey, would you? <laughs> Probably. You would, <laughs> I don't know. I think someone explaining it to you too. If you're trying something new that you haven't had before, mm. and someone explains to you how it's made and why it costs as much as it does, mm. you get a whole new appreciation for it. Did you? So, did you? Well, like, when did you first start getting into champagne, particularly? Well, I was really fortunate that my husband's brother married a girl from Champagne. Oh right. So. I'd already, I was a sports, I was a competitive swimmer when I was a teenager and I didn't drink much, but I had this bottle of Bollinger that had been given to me for my birthday when I was 18. Mm-hmm. So I was actually the first alcohol I had was, was Bollinger. Well, it's, it's probably, I didn't know, it's lost on me. I mean, I knew it was champagne and I knew it was French and I knew it was expensive and special and probably took three days to drink it with my mum because we were too scared to finish it because yeah. it was expensive and I didn't really i know i loved it and it was something extraordinary but i didn't have anything to compare it to either and i never thought i'd ever drink another bottle of bollinger in my life it just seemed like one of those things that was so out there yeah and i didn't know back then i would marry a french person french people drink champagne all the time 
it's just part of well if there's a celebration even people that aren't that well off if you've got friends coming over or at someone's birthday they mostly would make the effort to have a bottle of champagne champagne. and it's cheaper there you can buy it in the supermarket and And it's easier to get so i was lucky that um because i got on very well with that part of the family we were living in belgium it was a three-hour drive we didn't have any kids so we just went down on the weekends all all the time and when you know local people, they say, go and see my mate at this particular cellar. Yeah. And they're all the little ones that nobody's heard of. So is your favourite one of the, the big guns, or is your favourite a little boutique one that you can only get in France? Uh, it's like, you know, asking my favourite <laughs> child. <laughs> they're all different. I like, it depends the occasion. I do, I would have to say, probably because it's the first one I taste and it's always had that wow factor for me is Bollinger. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's so many other ones that I really love. Big names, small names. Do you do you find that you get in moods for particular ones? Like, yeah, I'll go. You know, is there a, a yeah. nice one for sitting in front of a fire and being yes. reflective, and a nice one yeah, for exactly, you know, getting the party started? Yeah, yeah. So a nice little non-vintage, not light, bright sort of Chardonnay heavy one. It's great for getting a party started. Yeah, an aged champagne, the end of a meal. Yeah, really complex. It's, that's beautiful. They they have some non vintage champagnes that are made from that Solero method like brandy Do you oh know okay much about yeah yeah yep yep yeah. um and they're extraordinary and they're actually really ta- you know you sit back and some days I just feel like a blanc de blanc which is just made from chardonnay and I'll go through phases and all yeah. I want is blanc de blanc and then I'll get over that and then I want blanc de noir because that's different again that's made only from the um, black grapes and champagne so the, the brandy is the one where you get the seal on the is it is a brand what's the um it's a spanish wine and they get a seal sherry is that sherry sherry yeah, yeah sherry X, yeah, and, yeah and it seals off so no oxygen gets mm. into it mm. and the, again that you know that accident thing yeah and there's a, a a drink where somehow oxygen got into underneath the the seal mm. and when they opened it they had a completely different drink because of oxygen and the sugars had converted a lot more and a lot yeah. more quickly and um, I can't remember what the name of that drink well, was. Well champagne was a bit of an accident too because they didn't set out trying to make no. champagne and they accidentally had this double fermentation method that they didn't mean to make because I think I can't remember the story it was something about that had a, a warmer summer and then it got cold again so the temperature dropped down and it effectively had a double um, cellaring time yeah and Dom Perignon, the monk, is accredited with having come and yeah, found it. And it wasn't really... There's some dispute in that start the story, but it sounds good. But It's, um, it's a little bit like Roquefort, yeah, that is the, the story of the Roquefort cheese, the blue cheese. No. That there was a monk, you know, yeah. the, the, the monks made cheese because that's mm. how you stored your milk long term mm. before you had refrigeration. Mm. And he was going from one monastery to the other monastery and he got chased by bandits, went up into some caves dumped all his cheese, rode off to the monastery and then came back a month later with, um, you know, a much bigger party to get the cheese and the, and that's where that, that come in. well, that's yeah. where that penis, that, that, that blue mould yeah. is in those caves. That's where, and you know, so mm. it got into the cheese and instead mm. of throwing it away, they went, oh, give so it a try. French and ate it. <laughs> Rock fort, yeah. I'll try anything. Yeah. I know. I, there's a lot of things that come about by mistake. Mm. So it's quite interesting yeah so um yeah there's not the thing with champagne that i found so fascinating is within all those restraints and and rules 
such a diverse drink. Yeah. There's so much. I will never taste all of the champagnes. Do, do they get excited when they produce something that's a little bit different? Or is yeah. there is it there that it's sort of frowned upon that it's something different? Well, it depends. So um, if they're trying to, mm. they get very excited oh. that they get the, the results. Because when you think about it, they, they taste. So they have their harvest and they put the grapes in the vats to ferment for about four to six weeks. And then that's like a still wine. They don't really know what it's going to be what like. It's going to be like. Yeah. So it takes four to six weeks to ferment. It's quite extraordinary if you go into the wineries at that time, you feel the heat from the fermentation process. And oh, you can right. actually, if you put your hands on, on the barrels, you, the feel ones the energy. You, you can feel the energy in the barrels. They're shaking. It's really amazing. Wow. Um, it's living, breathing. It's just, you know. And, um, and then they leave them. So they have the harvest usually towards the end of September. It's finished by end of October, mid-October, end of October. That first fermentation process is over, and they'll have an initial taste. Yeah, I was going to say they, they would be able to t- to have an idea then, wouldn't yeah. they? Yeah, but then they don't start their blending process until about February or March. Okay. So they'll blend, and then what they have to do is go. Okay, this one I, I've never assisted in that. It's kind of you've really got to be in the inner in circle, circle to be, and I hope that I do get that. I actually got invited to go over this year, but I couldn't go. But um, it must be fascinating because you've got to have such a good memory for flavour and you've got to also know what the capacity for ageing will be and what that's going to do as a still wine. And not only that, the bubbles are added and there's all that. So it's bottled in, in, um, say, March as a still blend, still yeah. wine blend, they add some sugar and yeast to get that second Same fermentation, fermentation going. And it's got to sit a minimum of 15 months in the cellar before it can be a non-vintage champagne. So the end result, they've got a taste from a two, long time before years, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And vintage is three years sitting in the cellar before they're... A, that, and that's minimum. That's the cheap ones. The ones that really care for it will minimum four years or minimum six years for yeah. vintage and so you open one and you go in that in that see this is where i struggle with like mm. i i did a lot of cheese making when i had all the milk yeah um and i will again when i get more milk but i'm mm. terrible for keeping notes and i'm terrible mm. for keeping stuff in my head and you know, you're sort of doing it at a, in a small scale you're not doing it every day so you're not yeah. getting that repetition and that built-up knowledge mm. And so I made some amazing camemberts. I made some camemberts slash brie's that were wow. as good as anything I've eaten. Because they're from non-pasteurised milk too, really. Yep, yeah, that too. Yeah. But just amazing. And then I made stuff that's barely good enough to put onto a pizza. <laughs> and I'm and like I'm like, well, you know. And I know that I haven't done exactly. You know, I might not have turned it as much, yeah. or the moisture level's not right. But imagine if you're making huge amounts of wine. And four years down the track, something comes out amazing and you're like, well, you know, even if you went back to your notes and you were just an amazingly detailed person, and how would you remember exactly that, you know, that, well, you know, it must have been that that flat wine that had that yeah. bit more acidity or something like that. And then how do you replicate that? How yeah. do you then re-blend it? Mm. And I guess it's hard, just as hard for the guys that are trying to produce something that tastes exactly the same mm. every year. And they have big um, committees almost together that 
they'll have maybe six or seven people who are deciding on those blends and coming yeah. up with something and that they all agree on as well. So it's like a collective olfactory memory that they're, that they're relying on as well. Well, so. a dairy farmer said something really interesting. I was chat- like, when I first started milking, I talked to a lot of dairy farmers and talking about your supermarket milk. Mm. And their attitude was supermarket milk is the worst milk you can buy because it's standardized mm-hmm. you can't standardize milk to to the best milk mm. you can only standardize down to the base level mm. to the to the worst milk of the mm. year because y- you can't make crappy like milk yeah. that's low in fat you can't make it taste like milk that when the grass is growing and it's green and yeah. everything's great you can't taste make off-season milk taste like that mm. so what you have to do is you have to take the good milk and pull it apart and make it taste like yeah. the off-season milk and that just blew my mind and that's why I'm really happy at the moment um, that people are discovering milks like Mulaney and, mm. and Scenic Rim and stuff like that and it fluctuates yeah. quite a bit and so it's great with the grasses and the yeah, different times can, of year that's what we lived in Switzerland for a while and you could really tell with the cheeses whether the, it was in winter when the cows were in the barns or mm. in summer when they were up in the hills, hills with the yeah. grass and you could taste it taste the difference that's yeah. right well yeah. yeah I could definitely you know um, even milking like I only milked one cow at a time mm. um, but I was bringing fruit home all year from there was a fruit shop down the road that used to give me their their waste every day and if you got a week of watermelon yeah or a week of peaches um you know because they're eating grass you could actually taste the slight differences in in Mm. that milk Mm. a lot of the times you got a mix of stuff and you you like it sort of evened out Mm. but if you got like two or three days of carrots Mm. and quite often you would because they would just have they you know, maybe bought too many mm. carrots and they're just dumping carrots every mm. day so you'd get half a bin of carrots every day. Mm. Oh, I reckon I could taste the difference yeah, in the flavour. See, this is what I think I like about um, French way of life and it's very seasonal. So yeah. if you go to the markets, and it's not avocado season. You don't get avocados. Avocados, no. You learn to use what's in season and it's excellent in season because you're getting it when it's ripe and good. Yeah. Um, like the milk you're getting spring milk spring yeah getting winter milk when it's winter you know you kind of tolerated the winter milk but everyone's really happy when the spring milk comes yeah, out and you look forward to um, certain yeah, seasons different things and i think we miss out a lot well the majority of people miss out on that here just the way our society has become and the way foods are so regimented with you know health mm. and how hot things to meet need to be heated and pasteurized and yeah. it takes away all that flavor well even um i think it's a little bit of education like i was making crepes the other night and i said to vanessa i said oh what do you want in your crepes and she said oh, i'd really like asparagus crepes and i said mm. yeah but it's it's not asparagus season no it? it's mm. it's not even there'll be asparagus in the supermarket but it'll come from south america and mm. it'll be terrible it might be the season in south america but it's traveled so far to yeah, get here like, that it's not yeah you know mm. And, and that's one of the things I try. I've got three asparagus plants because nice, yeah. nothing beats asparagus out of the garden. We, um, when my husband's home, parents' home is in Corsica, so mm. in the south of France. Oh, yep, yep. And all, a As- lot in, Asterix country. Yeah, Asterix country. <laughs> and also a lot in the south of France as well, but they get this wild asparagus mm. that grows. And in, it's always around Easter time and springtime, early spring. It's very Re- fine. Really thin. And you have to get a knife for it. You go out looking for it, 
And once you find one sticking up, yep. then you get it. And you've just got to get your eye. And we'd come back with great big, like, great big bunches filling both your hands up. And we'd make, like, asparagus quiche. Yeah. From the wild asparagus. Nothing tastes like it. Yeah, amazing flavor, And I've I seen imagine. once wild asparagus in a restaurant here in the time that we've been back. And it didn't have any flavor. So I don't know what it was or where they got it from. But, it, yeah, I'm sure it didn't come from... I've got a real thing about councils and governments not planning edibles as much as they could Mm. Um, and when I was in Queenstown all their parks, all their new parks they were planting peach and pear and apricot trees and my friends were sort of bewildered why I was so excited but you know, it's it's just and then people could come and pick them because not everywhere can have a place like you know Mm. Haven't they got a garden, a sustainable garden at Southbank now? Um, you're allowed to go and get yeah, your, your so. salad and stuff. And yeah. see people are afraid to do it because they feel like yeah, they're I, stealing. I think, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think that's part of the... Um, uh, like, everyone thinks that you can only get stuff from a shop. Mm. And there's the... Um, you know, like, I've talked to my grandmother about her mother mm-hmm. and when she was growing up and because... Uh, transport was a lot harder back then Mm. you know you grew lemons and I Mm. grew oranges and the person down the road had chooks and if the supermarket didn't have it then you knew who you went to in the neighborhood and you Mm. worked it out you know Mm. you swapped and when something was in season it sort of got broken up and spread around Mm. Um, I don't know that's not as convenient but Mm. uh, and and there is stuff popping up like that like the um, that the website that sort of has all the little Giveaway and cheap stuff that you yeah. can go and find in your local neighbourhood. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just I, th- I think everyone's trying to living, get sitting living. You just don't have the um, gardens to grow the stuff anymore mm. either, which is part of the problem. I'd love to get a beehive. I've been looking at those beehives. Mm. You know, they've got taps on them yeah, now, I've got so them. you don't. Oh, have you got the fly hives? Yeah. I told their kids I wanted one for my birthday, and everyone's laughing at me. No, no. Sorry, stick- great. You know. Have you got any flat roof? Well, I've got a flat, a bit of flat garden. Does yeah. it have to be a roof? The thing with you, if you put it on a roof, like if you put it yeah. on a garage roof, yeah, bees never fly down out of their hives. They always fly up. Okay. So if you put it up, even just above head height, mm. no one's ever going to run into the flight path and get stung. Oh. So that's why City Farm, you know, Northeast Street yeah. City Farm, yeah, they've got them on the roof of that oh, building. Okay. And you know, people wander, you have markets and everything through there, and no one ever gets stung. Nice. Yeah. Um, so that's a really good urban way of keeping bees. Mm. And with the flow hives, yeah, you just you can go up and... Turn the tap t- and get Especially your- if you buy the... Uh, I would advise don't modify the hives. Buy their hives that are set up mm-hmm. ready to go. Yeah. Um, and I, I can actually, well, either talk to Jack from B1 Third mm-hmm. or... Um, oh, that's their website I was looking at actually the other B- day. Yeah. B1 Third. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so he'll, he can set you up with the bees. Yeah. Um, or I've got a, a mate down at Tambourine Mountain who also yeah. does commercial beekeeping and sells splits. Mm. Um, and he'd set you up with like a nice calm queen and stuff mm. like that. But, okay, yeah. that's really, it's so interesting. My um, my swimming coach. He was my swimming coach when I was a kid, but he's my kid's swimming coach now. He lives out at Upper Brookfield, yep. so really quite far out. And he yep. has hives, but the old-fashioned ones where you have to smoke them, and, yeah, yeah, and was, he gets all this honey, and he'll bring it into the swimming pool yeah. pots, five hundred gram pots, and they change flavour. 
all every the time. season too because of the different flowers that are in bloom. Yeah, well, look, and the, I just find it fascinating that you can get your own and you don't have to smoke them and you don't have to. You could just turn a tap and the honey comes out. And it's well, especially if you if you talk to Jack, I think what they would do for you if they set you up with the hive is they would come out once a year and do the. So you should probably you still should open your bottom box, smoke it, and open your bottom box and check your queen and check mm. that it. You're still getting lots of eggs and everything once a year. Mm. You know, that, that general maintenance. So they could do that, though. They'll do that for you. Because they're invested, those guys, beyond mm. third, are invested in there being more bees, basically. Yeah. You know, it's not like... And, and cities are amazing places for bees. Like, mm. a, a city hive is way better than my place. Like, everyone sort of thinks really, bees should yeah. be out thing. But you've got all these different types of shrubbery that flower mm. all different types of year mm. um whereas my valley's pretty much you know one or two different types of trees and it flowers at a certain time and the mm. rest of the year it, it's not a very good flow mm. i remember going for a run up the sunny coast um at caloundra along one of the sort of not the main main road but one of the main roads four lanes and then you mm. know suburbia either side and they planted these huge native walls mm-hmm. on the side of the road okay. and they were just all out in flower wow. and I just I was just sitting there going oh if you had bees here you'd yeah. be killing it because yeah. the concentration of of blossom mm. in in there was like 20 times what my mm. valley is yeah do you know how far they fly to Th- about 3k so that's a lot isn't it yeah yeah like if you walk along the road and actually look at all the different things that are out mm. and you think of everyone's got a slightly different garden with slightly different mm. flowers in a city you probably got flower all year round mm. you, you're never going to lack for something for them mm. to eat mm. and with those um flow hives because you you crack one frame at a time mm. and where it's empty they'll go and fill so once they filled it up the first time and you crack a frame and you drain it mm-hmm. and take that away the next time you crack that frame will be a very specific type of flow like because it'll be a snapshot in time because they'll fill that up over the next month or three weeks or however long it takes them film so that'll be a three-week snapshot of what was in flower in that time whereas if you do the old-fashioned way and you take Mm. everything out Mm. then they you know the first little bit will be whatever you know it's like built out over time so you yep. get more of a blend right so you get more sort of single origin type honeys that's amazing from yeah. from a flow hive than you will yeah. from a traditional hive yeah that's amazing mm. which is oh, like you know if i've only got the three in the middle that's yeah. all i could sort of afford but yeah no, you know, that would probably be something like that too <laughs> yeah when, when you know when you could have the, the full eight frames it'd be really interesting to a little bit like your champagne to label your vintages yeah, and say great. well you know i emptied this on february of 2016 yeah. and it filled up again in, in march of 2016 so that's this vintage of honey keep a little pot and do tastings and see whether you could taste the difference i've got a friend on acreage and she's got one of the ones with the i think must have eight frames and it's got the glass front so you can oh see, yeah you know yeah yeah the, the, the real and, yeah. the real hoi polloi one yeah yeah but i'd just like a little one to get some honey as long as it's got a tap on it <laughs> well they were even talking about because i talked to them before they went big because mm. <laughs> i was trying to get them on the podcast mm. and and then it sort of just blew up and you know they got too way busy. way too busy mm. um and um yeah it, it was just like i was just amazed by the fact that i thought well i could 
now by a beehive for friends or family or whatever and set it all up for them and go and do the you know the maintenance one not that i'm a particularly mm. great beekeeper but go and do the maintenance for them once a year mm. but they were even talking about putting a system on like it was like you could have it on the roof with a pipe <laughs> and, and like a little motor on it so that you know you just press a button and it automatically crack and run down the pipe into your oh, shop nice. and you <laughs> i could have my own double beaver blend honey honey bubble, bubble diva honey <laughs> no. well me to puts his honey in his sausages yeah oh, wow off his he's roof, got on so. his roof hasn't he mm. yeah yeah oh oh well how do we get onto honey <laughs> regionality and mm. and seasonal things so my what my white truffles oh yeah yeah um so are they are they okay are they just just milder yeah, they don't have a lot of flavour, mm-hmm. so you need to have a lot yeah. to taste it. So, um, but they are what they are. Yeah. Like, that's, yeah. They'll have a bit of a smell, and it'll look really generous when you shave them all over everything. Thing, yeah. But the real um, tuber magnatum, the ones that come from Italy or the Alba, they are like, blow your head off, kind of strong, punch. Yeah. Have you heard of anyone growing them in southeast Queensland? Truffles, the black truffles. The good ones, yeah. Oh no, they can't. The white truffles—that's the other thing with um, the tuber magnatum. Nobody's ever been able to cultivate them. Yeah. And they're um, only found in around Alba in Italy. Oh right. So yeah. what are the ones they're growing in the acorn trees in WA? Oh, they've got in hazelnut trees. They've got the black truffles, yeah. tuber melanosporum. So that's not the real good truffle. Yeah, that's the good black truffle. Yeah. That's the real black truffle. Okay. So that's called tuber melanosporum, and that's been spored from French Perigord truffles. Yeah. Um, so that's the really good expensive black truffles. But there's a whole range of truffles in between expensive black truffles and very expensive white truffles. Ah, That are okay. truffles of various shades of black and white. Yeah. That don't have the flavour and that are easy to pick up and grow and so do you what's the do you know what the best truffle i could try and grow in southeast queensland is do you know of any good truffles being grown here at all somebody's growing i don't think you'd get the good ones in the climate in brisbane yeah, it's too hot. um it's too hot but someone is growing them in the granite belt and okay there's about three people the black truffles but it's all a bit secretive yeah i think the climate's a bit of a challenge here you need frost yep and we don't quite get cold enough you need yeah. extended periods of frost to bring them up Okay. from the ground and you need rain at the right time and we don't get a lot of rain no. so it's a bit of a challenge to, to grow them here mm. I've got them in um, Canberra region New South Wales okay. and ACT sort of Canberra region Tasmania kind of got a lot of publicity to start with and WA produces something like 80% of the truffle in Australia. in Australia but they're also the biggest producer of truffle in the world because of really? the quantity that they're yeah wow yeah and why is that just because they've just but they've made a huge business out of it they've just basically invested heavily turned a lot of land into truffles yeah and a lot of science and a lot of um working out how not to get wastage and how to get the best truffles they can yeah okay Um, they've really put a lot into it and then they have a fantastic product because of that it is so it is a good product it's very good and um it's recognized by some of the best chefs in the world as the best truffles around wow Mm, manjimup it seems to have a really good conditions there too they have um so truffles they grow around the roots of either the oak or hazelnut trees and um, 
because they're sort of in the root system as they spread out a lot of the time you have them that are wrapped around the roots so they're very knobbly kind of shape yeah in wa they've got very sandy soft soil Ah. so the truffles the ones that get further away from the center of the tree tree on the finer roots on the finer they're beautiful round truffles so they're getting much more bang for their buck yeah yeah so they have they produce these beautiful ones and even when we get we get really good french export quality ones when we import the french ones but i don't think they're they look as beautiful as the extra quality western australian ones wow i'll never be able to do a taste test for both of them because they're opposite seasons so i'll never have a french one Uh, sitting next to an australian one so you're basically relying on memory yeah and yeah and you can taste the difference between like i can taste the difference between a, a tasmanian truffle and a western australian truffle they've got it's hard to explain to someone who doesn't know or hasn't eaten a lot of truffle yeah you have to have eaten a lot of truffle to taste the difference but you can see the difference if you put them side by side yeah there's some red soil in western australia the truffles are sort of brownish tinge on the outside just from the residual dirt yeah and the tasmanian ones are very very black chocolatey yeah just really quite black so um it's it's interesting but you have to see them side by side and then the ones they're really decent ones in um new south wales as well okay they have a good flavor but they're sort of only recently that that sandy soil thing would have been just a a brilliant stroke of luck i guess yeah i think they spend a lot of time getting the soil right and the conditions right there's a lot of science and yeah moisture level money huge money that goes into it so they i was out and munching up about two weeks ago i went and visited i've been in truffle farms in france but never in australia so it was a first for me yeah this is a big drive down from Perth, so you've already got to fly, you know, oh, five yeah. hours, and there's a four-hour drive down from Perth. Beautiful, beautiful countryside. Um, and I was just amazed at how pristine and perfect and beautiful Aussie's truffles are coming up out of the ground. <laughs> they were telling me they will get about four and a half to five ton this year from that particular farm I was at, which is one of the biggest. Wow. And like you think of the retail value of that two thousand dollars a kilo it's just and are they then because they're growing them on an edible nut tree what are they doing with the nuts just letting well interestingly yeah because if they harvest the nuts i thought they'd do something with the hazelnuts because you could collect the hazelnuts and roast them and sell them off as a byproduct but they don't want to because they have to bring machinery in and that'll compact the ground ground. down and then that's going to compromise the soil that the truffles have to grow in so what they just pick them up off the ground for themselves no they just rot on the ground i guess it's all adding back into the soil and it all rots back down and it'd probably um add to a more uh like almost a wild flavor possibly yeah because you know back in the forests of france Mm. or whatever they wouldn't have been Mm. harvesting the, the you know other than mm. people picking them up off the ground and i think they've got much more of a the way they're doing it and the science that goes into it they've probably got a much bigger yield there's a lot less waste because they're trying not to waste anything yeah whereas some of the you know farmers in france that go out with their pig or their dog it's kind of what they can get and take to market and that's it <laughs> yeah it's interesting the way those um things shake out when i did my permaculture design course the the guy that was teaching us um sort of system design was telling us he went and worked at a sort of hippie commune slash permaculture place in WA and they were managing this forestry 
for a company so they were growing the trees basically mm. and these guys could stay on the at the farmhouse and they had their little community mm. and their job was to keep the grass down around the trees keep the weeds down because if bushfires came mm. through it could wipe out the crop mm. so initially they started doing it by hand you know mm. and it's hugely intensive and they could never quite keep up with what they were supposed to do so they yeah. did some investigation and they basically figured out that what they needed was strip farming cattle so you put cattle in electric fences and you move them okay down in strips and they keep the grass down and mm-hmm. you rotate them out so the thing is if you keep cattle cattle grow mm-hmm. and you've got to keep changing your cattle around so they were all hardcore strict vegetarians okay and they're growing all their own food as well on this place and everything like that and so they're growing these cows and to keep the numbers up and everything moving they had a bull and they were sending the calves away to the abattoir or the old Mm. and but then that sort of that clashes with your permaculture principles because you're sending something off-site you're sending it off in a truck for someone else to deal with so they had staying yeah yeah, it's not staying within the system you're Mm. harnessing the energy of those Mm. cows but then you're basically going no 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 i don't want to i don't want to deal with it and sending them off so they had this big meeting Mm. and on mass decided that they would start eating meat oh okay and basically built their own home kill abattoir on the place and and went back to killing the killing the excess beef and mm. like killing the, the steers basically mm. and eating them themselves so he okay. said they went he said pretty much overnight they went from a completely 100 percent vegetarian diet mm. to one based around the beef cow yeah. because there's a reason for it because it was sustainable yeah, yeah because it was yeah. it, like because that's the way it worked within the system that mm. was the smartest way to run mm. the system and instead of um spending like basically all their labor was going into mowing and keeping grass around from trees because Mm. that's how they were using the land that's what they were getting paid for Mm. um and then with the cattle like you just build the strip fencing it doesn't take very long Mm. basically run an electric fence for your main fences and then throw the cattle in and then leave them for a week and move them and they could do all this other stuff with their time yeah um it's clever yeah yeah but so it, they had to change their whole lifestyle they, they, they had to change their whole philosophy <coughs> around what they ate yeah um i, I found it really interesting that they mm. were sort of uh sort of pragmatic and logical enough to mm. go you know we can't just send this off and pretend that it doesn't happen yeah you know we want to keep it based within our own system as much as possible intelligent so. um they're mm. intelligent mm. So, yeah that's really interesting so have you got anything to plug, Amanda? Have you got uh, anything coming up? Yeah, Truffles but, or, or champagne? Well, it's actually truffle season's about to start. Yeah. So um, they're going to be on the menus everywhere around, but you can get them if you're a home cook and you want to have a, a go at doing them with your eggs. Scrambled eggs and truffle is mm-hmm. probably one of the best things. You were talking before about pizzas. Yeah. Pizzas and truffle and parmesan, they just go beautiful. Oh, That's all oh, kind of... And when you get your truffles, you'll be able to... Just generously smash smash it all over with parmesan cheese and rocket. That would be really nice. Truffle's not hard to cook with because it's almost a garniture. It's a garnish. It's it's got to be heated to a certain amount for the flavour to release, but um, it can't be overheated or it will lose its flavour. It's a little bit delicate, but if you're... So is that why it goes with scrambled eggs? Because scrambled eggs is something where... You just it at the end, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and pasta, like pasta with a creamy sauce, it's so delicious as yeah. well. Shaved over the top of anything, and the heat of 
the cooking that's already cooked is enough to release all the flavors yeah so yeah, yeah. I, I love making fresh pasta so where if i was in brisbane and i wanted to go and buy fresh truffles where's the best place to go you can and buy? get them from our website okay. um, the truffleman.com.au so that's we're getting them in every week from wa from have a few next week but probably the week after so second week of june yeah um and then we'll have them for a couple of months um, if I can get them into some of the markets. Last year I got them to Standard Market Company. Okay. Had them as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know those guys. So. Yeah, so I'll have to get in touch with them and let them know they're coming up again so people will be able to get them from there when they're doing the shopping. Mm. Um, and then the other exciting thing I've got coming up is my um, champagne festival that I've been organising that's in August. Yeah. It's the 19th to 21st of August and it's called Effervescence. And what it is, is a celebration of all things champagne. And champagne is a drink of celebration, so we're having a celebration of a celebratory drink. And, um, You're celebrating the celebrating. Yeah, exactly. And champagne, something I've wanted to do for a long time because I think we just see champagnes in bottles and shops. And yeah. if you go to even wine tastings or champagne tastings, it's all in a big room and you don't get any notion of where it comes from. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of show the diversity of champagne as a drink and as a region I, so i did notice it it, it is intensely popular though because i did notice at noosa um fine foods fine, their yeah. champagne masterclass. yeah they had bernadette o'shea up there she's gone. so amazing and she's just so well loved she's been around for yeah like, i think she's been in doing master classes and things for about 30 years yeah in brisbane she's so, like the doyen so we're having master classes and we're having where it's outside it's up at spices at oh, yeah. in yeah, Manchester, yeah. and it's going to be an outdoors event and we're setting up stations all over the property to sort of replicate the different areas in champagne cool. so the houses that have that are situated in a particular area will group them in one little tasting area and then yeah. you go for a walk and you go to the so next little sort of tasting get a feel get of a the feel. difference between the different yeah, areas yeah, yeah and the different tastes of the different champagnes from the different areas as well and where can people get tickets for that i've got my website is effervescence.com.au and there's tickets hours we've got buses we've organized going up for people who want to be responsible with driving coach transfers from roma street station so there's two parts to the event. There's the public big champagne trail, we're calling it, on the Sunday afternoon, the yep. 21st. It's about a three-hour tasting. There'll be charcuterie and, and cheese and champagne and entertainment and a bit of fun, a bit of an afternoon in France. But there's also a small group of people who are going to come along for the whole weekend and we're going to have a whole weekend of masterclasses. And okay, like the real degustation. serious Yeah, the real nerds. serious champagne people or girl weekends that really want to get away with their friends yeah so i've only got like 30 places for that and we'll have dinners degustation dinners lunches master classes a whole immersion yeah in champagne so um well i think there'll be a few people that listen to this that'd be interested in that i hope so i I was uh we were up um at fine food and wide completely um randomly my uh a relative had given us a, a couple of nights at the Sheridan that oh, she'd lovely. won, mm. and sh- someone else had booked it. We didn't even know mm. Noosa Fine Food was on, but we were talking to some people out of New South Wales, and they basically booked their holiday around it. They'd flown up, they yeah. you know picked their events. That they they were going changed to. it a bit this year, though. It was, and it, we didn't hear as much about. No, it. I think it's gone yeah. a lot more sort Smaller. of pulled in and gone yeah. a lot more local. Yeah, um, but they they basically look for a, a food festival 
with yeah. with a nice place to go and stay. It's not bad. Um, I'd do the same if there was one in Byron Bay probably having said that. You know, it's the same feeling yeah. for us to... If you want to go away for the weekend, a nice kind of food festival down in Byron, it'd be great. Yeah. So I think there'll be... Um, I don't think you'll lack for people that want to go and do so there that. There seems to be a lot of interest that kind of went a bit crazy on social media over the weekend. So oh, nice. So the word's getting out, so... Yeah. Cool. All right. Thank you very much, Amanda. Okay. Thanks, Biso. Cheers. Thanks Talk to you later. Me. Thanks.